You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Church, we took a short break from the gospel account of John last week in order that Pastor Michael would preach that beautiful farewell sermon to us, and I pray that you were blessed in that. So I'll take a minute and remind you how we got where we got. It's important, because if we don't, then this is going to fall, uh, and we're going to miss some things, okay? Last week, or two weeks ago, rather, we kind of left off in the gospel account with the story of Jesus hearing, healing that paralytic uh, at the pool in Bethesda, if you were here. Uh, Jesus goes up to a man who had been paralyzed for many years who was seeking healing, and he just says to him, you want to be healed? Yes, you do. Take up your bed and walk. And this paralytic gets up, and he picks up his bed, and he starts walking, right? And, and, and at this point, the Jews say to him, it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. And this paralytic who was miraculously healed, who's carrying his bed, says back to them, well, the one who healed me, that man said to take up your bed and walk. And so they asked him, who is this man who said to you to take up your bed and walk? And he didn't know. And later in the temple, Jesus sees him and says, look, you're well. Go and sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Declaring over him that you've received temporal, temporary healing for a far lesser issue, that you need healing for your spirit, for your soul, that you need healing for sin. And the man, now knowing who it was that healed him, runs and tells the Jews, hey, it was Jesus. And so it says there at the end that this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. So this is how the last sermon in, in our sermon series kind of ended up. And I want you guys to hear some things in order that we can set the stage correctly. The first is that when Jesus healed the man, he told him, take up your bed and walk. So if we don't know the context, then we can miss it, that in Orthodox Judaism, the Sabbath was to be observed in 39 different ways. They had a code book that they called the Mishnah, and they had 39 different ways that you were to observe the not working part of the, uh, of the Sabbath day. And so number one of the list of 39 ways that you were to not work on the Sabbath was you were not to carry stuff. Number one, don't carry stuff. And in particular, they said you're not to carry things from one domain to another. So to carry something from your from your, inside your home to outside your home was to violate the Sabbath. In the city of Jerusalem, they literally drew lines in order to delineate how far you could walk before you could think, I've just carried something from one domain to another, okay? So to perfectly obey, rule number one of the Sabbath was to carry nothing, carry nothing. And I mean trivial things, like you can't carry your keys and a handkerchief, right? That would be perfect obedience to the Sabbath, but you're especially not supposed to carry things across a domain. So when Jesus says to the paralytic, take up your bed here on the Sabbath and walk, he is inviting him and telling him to violate rule number one that the Jews had written around the Sabbath. And so he invites controversy by doing that, and he gets the controversy that he was seeking. And so the Jews then charge the man, it is not permissible for you to be doing this. He says, well, Jesus told me to do it. So they go to Jesus, and it says all the more they were persecuting him because he violated the Sabbath. Well, these Jews who really cared about getting the Sabbath right they wrote the 39 things. They really thought through what does work mean in order that we may not do it. They reasonably asked the question, does God have to obey the Sabbath? 
And this sounds funny, but it's a good question to ask. Does the God who instituted the Sabbath require it of himself? This God who rested on the seventh day, does he work on the Sabbath? And they rightly concluded, yes, God works on the Sabbath. The God who, by the power of his word, upholds all things, who is feeding the birds, you know, each morning, the, the God who sustains all things, he doesn't take a day off on the Sabbath. God can work on the Sabbath. But no one else can work on the Sabbath. And so Jesus, knowing this, creating this controversy, setting up this moment where they come and they charge him, they persecute him for doing these things on the Sabbath, Jesus said to them, I know that only God can work on the Sabbath. That's why I'm working. This is the earliest kind of direct direct statement that Jesus makes that where he likens himself to God. My hope as we walk through these words from Jesus, every word in today's passage are directly from Jesus' mouth, and it's a long passage. I'm going to try to get through it in a reasonable time, but we're reading it all in one bit and going through it all in one bit because they heard it all in one bit. This is one interaction with Jesus, so we want to hear all his words together. So Jesus has set up this interaction, and they're charging him, only God can work on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, that's right. That's why I'm working. My Father is working until now, and I am working. Verse 18 starts our passage this morning that this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now I'm hoping that by looking at directly at Jesus' words this morning that we're going to be able to answer three questions. And we're going to let Jesus answer for himself three questions. Now question number one that we're going to see if Jesus can answer for himself here is, is Jesus God? Is Jesus God? We need to let him answer that for himself. The first thing is that Christianity kind of lives and dies on the claim that Jesus is himself God. It's where we part ways with most other world religions, right? Whether you are a, a, a Mormon or a Muslim or a, or a Jew or a Latter-day Saint, right? Like you don't believe that either Jesus is God or that he is equal with the Father, right? But what Christians uniquely claim is that Jesus is himself God, equal with the Father. But it wouldn't make any sense to question or wonder whether or not that's true unless Jesus made that claim of himself, right? And there have been charges, like the world has made charges that this, these were things that people started saying about Jesus later, but he never intended for us to understand him that way, to see him that way, or whatever. And so we need to let Jesus speak for himself. And here, Jesus, who created the controversy on purpose, creates this interaction, has people challenging him, saying, only God can work on the Sabbath. Jesus says, yeah, that's why I'm working, and they seek all the more to kill him. Why? Because they understood him to be making himself equal with God. Was he? Let's see. Verse 19. So Jesus said to them, pay attention to the so. So Jesus said to them. So this is in response, in light of the fact that all the more they want to kill him because he is making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, this is his chance to clear things up. This is his chance. If they're misunderstanding him, if he's not trying to make himself equal with God, if that's just them kind of putting something on him that he wasn't trying to say, here's the chance to clear it up. Let's see what he says. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. 
For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. So what Jesus has just said here in response to them saying, hey, you're making yourself equal with God here. He goes, I literally do only what God does. Everything that I say, it's like God saying it. Everything that I do, it's like the Father's doing it. I only ever do what God is doing. In other words, if you want to know what God is like, look at me. If you want to know what God has to say, listen to me. If you want to know what the will of God is, look at me. Truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Why? For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. In greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. So now he claims a special intimacy with the Father. He says that by the love shared between the Father and the Son, that by love the Father shows everything that he is doing to the Son, and that by love the Son does everything that the Father is showing him, that they are uniquely one, is the claim that he is making here. That we are uniquely one, only ever in total unity with one another. And he says, and shows him all that he himself is doing. So this is a big claim, right? That means that Jesus has never said something like what we will often say. He's never said, God works in mysterious ways. God, what are you doing right now? I... I'm depending on the little bit that I do understand to try to believe that you're good because I really don't understand what you're doing. Jesus is claiming here that for the, the Father loves the Son in such a peculiar and unique way, in such a united way, that he shows him all that he himself is doing. That at all times, Jesus is aware of what the Father is up to. Not only aware of it, but carrying it out himself bodily. So to answer the question of did Jesus claim to be God and to be equal with God, I have to say, yeah. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel, Jesus says, so that you may marvel. Well, okay, Jesus, you have just said that you are the God of the Sabbath, that only God can work on the Sabbath, and that's why you're working. You and the Father are one, is what you're claiming here. You're claiming that you at all times are perfectly in tune with the Father, and that you perfectly and only carry out his will at all times in creation. That that's what you do, that you have unique unity and love with the Father. You've claimed that, and yet greater works than these, you're saying that you're going to show. What greater works could you possibly do? Verse 21, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Jesus is saying to his accusers who want to kill him for doing stuff on the Sabbath, I can bring dead people alive. I mean, all of us agree that only God can do that. And Jesus, by claiming to be able to do it, 
says, as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Well, he's also just said that the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his Father doing, and he only ever carries out the perfect will of the Father, which means when Jesus says, I can give life to who? Whoever I will. Well, who will you? Whoever God wants, whoever the Father wants. Well, who does the Father want? Whoever I will. He is in a reciprocal way speaking in every kind of corner that he can to make sure that this is understood. Thank you, sir. Every way that, every way that he possibly can. We are one. I am God. For the Father judges no one, verse 22, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Father does not honor the Father or out of the Son, does not honor the Father who sent him. Take you up on that. So he says, if the Father judges no one, which we know, like he's speaking to the people who understood God the Father to be the judge of all things, the creator and judge of all things. He says, the Father judges no one, but he has vacated that to the Son. He has yielded it to the Son. He's given all judgment to the Son. Why? That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So now he's saying of himself, not only, I'm not only equal with God in ability, I'm not only equal with God in utility. I'm not only equal with God in just the things that we're doing. I'm not just equal with God in knowledge of his will. I am equal with God in honor. I am worthy of every drop of honor that the Father is worthy of. In fact, so much so that unless you honor me, you cannot honor the Father. The layers and the depth to which he is claiming and making sure that we can't miss that he is claiming to be God and to be on equal footing with God cannot be missed here. Jesus makes this claim of himself that the Son and the Father are one, equal in glory and honor and majesty and love with one another, and that you cannot honor. I mean, imagine if I said this to you. Imagine if anybody said this to you, that if you want to honor God, bow to me. If you want to know what God wants for you, just ask me. This is such a high claim that they're going to kill him for it. They're going to kill him. I mean, we know the end of the story. It doesn't end with a death, but they're going to kill him for it. And he's not letting them off the hook. He requires of each of us the same thing. By making these high claims, church, we must know that he doesn't leave us some middle ground. We don't get to make him just a good teacher. We don't just get to make him some misunderstood prophet. He didn't let any of us off the hook. He makes you either kill him or worship him. That's what he does. By making these claims, you must say you're a liar or you are a lunatic, or you must say you are God. But he doesn't allow a middle ground. He's not letting them off the hook. And here he says, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. We're going to let Jesus answer three questions. One, is Jesus God? Does he even claim to be God? Two, what happens when we die? And three, does how we lived 
have anything to do with that? Jesus is going to, I mean, these are the questions of life. Like, these are the major questions that everybody must answer, and we need to let Jesus answer them for himself, and this is what he's getting after here. He has just claimed not only to be God, but in verse 24 it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. It says, God the Father has given the Son the right to judgment, and the one who believes in the words that I speak will not face judgment. So judgment is up to me, and here is how it's determined whether or not you're going to face it. Charles Spurgeon said that this line here, verse 24, is worthy of being written in gold and plastered all over the earth, that, that we would not enter into judgment but would pass from death to life by b- belief in, the, in Jesus for eternal life. But before we get to that, which we will, we will, he says, we want to make sure we stay on task with what he's doing here. He says, whoever hears my word and believes me, No, do we have it up? Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Here, yet again, he's saying, when I speak, you're believing him. Whoever hears my word and believes us is what Jesus is saying here, has eternal life. He is claiming the right to speak on behalf of God the Father. You hear my word and believe him. That person does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. In church this morning, I want you to hear that word, judgment, death, and life, and soberly consider what Jesus is saying here. Will not come into judgment? That the one, he's saying, the Father has given me alone the right to judge. And we will face Jesus as a judge. And we will not face judgment. We will not come into judgment or condemnation, but will pass from death to life. On what basis? That we hear his word and believe him. We're going to come back to it. Let's let him keep talking. Truly, truly, I say to you, An hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Let's look at it all together. I have been given the right alone to judge I will not judge those who hear my word and believe him who sent me, but you will pass from death to life. An hour is coming and is now here. This is the already and the not yet of Christianity. An hour is coming. He's going to talk about that hour in a second, but is also now here where the dead will hear my voice, the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear it will live. 
Jesus was actively talking about, like right now in his ministry, as he preaches and as he teaches, that people were going to be brought from death to life. He's speaking at least in part about spiritual death into spiritual life for those who would believe the gospel that he was preaching, for his disciples, for the Roman centurion who would repent when he sees him crucified, that Jesus right now in his earthly ministry is saving people by the power of his word. He's also talking about literally taking dead people like Lazarus, which will come, or like, the, or, or, or like Jairus' daughter, and he will save dead people and by the power of his word will literally resurrect people from death to life. And all of this is going to be a foreshadowing to testify to a central truth that he alone by the power of his word can bring dead people to life. Jesus is claiming to those who say, you make yourself equal to God, saying, I can bring dead people to life. The power of my word brings dead people to life. In church, we were dead in the trespasses in which we once walked at the moment that the word of God took root in our hearts and took a heart of stone and turned it to a heart of flesh and brought us into new life. That's your story if you find yourself in Christ. But if this morning that's not your story, then you do not receive new life. But instead, hear this. A moment is coming and is now here where the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Verse 28, do not marvel at this. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And we'll get to the last sentence in a second, but first we need to hear it. Everyone's getting up. The power of the word of Jesus Christ, which we read in chapter 1, of John in our introduction. It is by the power of his word that not only all things were created, but that all things are sustained. The reason why the stars remain where they are, or why the sun keeps rising and falling, why the planets keep spinning, and everything else, why the plants keep growing, and why you keep eating, is because the power of the word of God is sustaining all things at all times. Jesus is saying, keep doing that. Keep doing the thing that I made you to do. Keep doing that. Keep doing that. Keep doing that. All things are happening because Jesus is willing it to happen by the power of his words. So that means that it's not even a big deal when Jesus says to all those who are in the tombs, come back. Up with you. They're in the tomb because his power of his word is keeping them there. And by the power of his word, they'll get up. This is what Jesus is claiming. Total authority over all things is what he is claiming here. And he says that on that day, verse 28, do not marvel at what I am saying because an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear my voice and come out. And those who have done good will be invited to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And what we're going to do is we're going to read this sentence without the whole counsel of Jesus' ministry and the rest of Scripture. And we're going to see, okay, so Jesus is going to then put us on a scale and measure whether or not we've done enough good to determine whether or not we are going to receive life. But Jesus has just said otherwise. Jesus himself, when the rich young ruler comes to him, like in the Gospel of Mark, and he says, good teacher, tell me what I must do to inherit eternal life. Jesus responds back to him, why do you call me good? Only God is good, is what he says back to the man, right? What he's saying is, don't call me good teacher, call me good God. Good God. Only God is good. 
if the epistles are true, then none is righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which means that on that day, when Jesus says to those in the tombs, get up, and he pours out his judgment, either inviting people to the resurrection of life for those who have done good, or the resurrection of judgment for those who have done evil, who could be found among the good? Who? Church, you must reconcile with the words of Jesus here. You will not be graded on a curve on the day of judgment. Jesus is not going to weigh your good deeds against your sin to determine whether or not you will receive entry into eternal life. That's just not how it works. It's just not right. And if you were going to be graded on a curve or just put on a scale, first I would say to you, in every case, your sin will far outweigh the good and you, would, you just have no hope if that's the situation. But maybe you don't believe me on that and you want to argue back, and I'll allow it. But let me just say that even if the scales were tipped on the side of good, the standard is perfection. You were created by God originally in his own image to perfectly reflect his goodness and glory and majesty and creation. That's what you were made to do, to dwell on this earth perfectly reflecting the face of God like Jesus did. Like how Jesus just claimed, I only ever do the will of the Father. I have perfect unity and connection with him. That's what you were made for. In your very existence, doing anything but that is a great rebellion and a treason against the throne of God. And for that we will be judged, regardless of whether you give soup to a hungry guy. And it is a mockery of the cross to say that in light of being a, a rebellious, dagger-yielding attacker of the throne of God to claim that I can be God of my own life, that I am the master of my own life, that I can do this without you, God, but look at the good things that I'm doing. These things are an affront and, a, and an offense to a holy God who requires perfection of us. It's what we were made for. So who stands a chance on that day when he rises the dead, some to the resurrection of life and those to the resurrection of death? Well, he said it. He said it back in verse 24. Who are the ones who have done good? Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 24, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, it's he who has eternal life. So who gets the resurrection of life? the one who has heard his word and believed him who sent him. It is faith alone in Christ alone that we are saved. In church, it is highly likely that there is someone in this room today who believes that it is some combination of Christ's mercy and Christ's perfect life lived on their behalf and Christ's death as, that is offered as payment for their sin and his resurrection plus their good works that is gaining them favor with God. That God is somehow pleased with them and on the day of judgment is going to say, well done my good and faithful servant. That teamwork between you and Jesus was enough for me to welcome you into eternal life and I'm telling you it's a damnable lie. You did not team up with Jesus to do enough good works to appease the wrath of God against a sinful, rebellious mankind. You are made right with God on the merits of Christ alone. Christ alone. You didn't help him. You didn't meet him halfway. God is not taking pity on the undeserving poor. It is Christ alone 
that will gain you merit with the Father. The truth is, is that we were made for perfection. So when Jesus dwelled bodily on this earth, what he did is he lived the life that you were designed to live on your behalf. And then he died the death that we were due to die to make payment for the sins that we committed that he did not. And then he alone, since he's God, rose victorious over the punishment for our sin in order that he could invite us into the reward that he was then given. This is the Christian life. And if Jesus is not God, then we are to be pitied among all people. If Jesus is not God, then he couldn't have resurrected from the dead. Only God can do that. If Jesus is not God, he doesn't have the power to live the life for me. If Jesus is not God, he doesn't have the penalty, he doesn't have the ability to take the penalty of death for me. If Jesus is not God, then he cannot ransom himself, like, like he cannot rise again from that penalty for me. That's just not possible. If he's just a guy, if he's just a prophet, then there's no reason why we should be listening to any of this. And so his claim to be God and equal with the Father is everything in what he has just stated. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. He's again referencing to the Jewish laws. He's saying that people can't just come and say things and have it be true, that their justice system requires that there be witnesses. And so he says, on what basis can you believe me? Well, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true, so let me prove it. Verse 32, there's another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. I love this. My wife had a chuckle at it last night when I was reading it to her, but there's this idea here that the testimony that testifies that Jesus is God is not a human testimony, but for our sake, since he knows the Jews, and he knows that they're going to be like, hey, it says you need a human witness, and uh, so you can't just say God is the one who testifies. It's like, so we sent you John. Witness number one, John. He has borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. 35, he was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Witness number two, my works. I got John to back me up. I got my works to back me up. He says, you want to, like, look at me. When I speak and 15 miles away a dying kid is healed, my works testify that I am God. Look at me. When I say to the paralytic, take up your bed and walk, and he takes up his bed and walks, is testifies about me. I am God. And then he says, and the Father who sent me, verse 37, has himself borne witness about me. But this one's useless to you, he says, because his voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it's they that bear witness about me. 
yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So he says, the Father himself bears testimony about me, and lastly, the scriptures testify about me. I've got an abundance of witnesses, he says, but he says that his word does not abide in them, because if it did, then when he showed up on the scene, these people who loved their Bible, who loved their scriptures, we're we're talking about the first five books of the Bible here, Jesus is saying, when you search through the books of Moses, the laws of God, when you read them, if if his word abided in me and in you, then when I appeared, you would have been like, it's you, it's you, you're the one that, that the words were telling me about, were promising me, it's you, but instead I arrived and you didn't know me. His words don't abide in you. Or you would have recognized me. Guys, come, like, think about this claim. Brett, when you read your Bible, if afterwards you don't look at me and I'm like, it's you, then you don't understand your Bible. This is a lofty claim. The scriptures from thousands of years ago were about me, 33-year-old Jesus. You search the scriptures because you think that they have eternal life, and it's they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I don't receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. It says, his words do not abide in you. His love does not abide in you. For the love of God to abide in you, you must receive Jesus. This is the crux of the Christian life, church. You must receive Jesus. You, once and for all, must receive Jesus on the day that the resurrection of the dead takes place by the power of the word of Jesus and you stand before the judgment seat. One of two things will be read over you, over all of us, either the record of your deeds or the record of Christ's deeds on your behalf. And the only difference between one person and the next will be whether or not they received Jesus. Did they receive Jesus on their behalf? Or are they trying to make an account before God on their own merit? And if you do that, you will not be able to withstand the judgment of the Father. You won't. This is the Christian life. And speaking to the most religious people on the planet, Jesus is saying, you don't know me. His word does not abide in you, and his love does not abide in you. You who hope in the very scriptures are dead and destined for eternal judgment, you must receive me, Jesus says to them. And how sobering is that, guys? They know their Bible better than you. They know their Bible better than me. These were the religious elite They were trained in a scholarly way to research the scriptures so that they would be ready and know and to be able to spot the Messiah. And he's talking to them. God is face to face with them and they want to kill him. How can you believe? He says, "If, if another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father, St. God. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set 
your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you don't believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is kind of that last piece that I want you guys to hear. Is Jesus God? Yeah. At least he says so. What happens after we die? We wait a minute, and then he says, come on back. And then we all face resurrection into eternal life or resurrection into judgment. What is the merit of the basis of that? The question is, does how we lived have anything to do with that? And the answer is decidedly no and yes. See, here he says that I don't think that I will accuse you to the Father. And this is super sad. Like, it doesn't even have to get to that point. He says, because you didn't put your hope in me. There will be people, he says in Matthew, that there will be people who on the day of judgment will claim to have put their hope in Jesus, and he will say, no, you didn't. So he's not saying I won't accuse anybody. Jesus will accuse those who said, I I put my hope in Jesus, and he'll say, either you did or you didn't. That's either true or it's a lie. He says, there's no need for me to accuse you. You didn't put your hope in me. You put your hope in Moses, so it'll be Moses that accuses you. And if your hope is in Moses, well, then you'll need to carry out whatever Moses said was your hope, but Moses said that your hope was me. He's writing about me, so the accusation of Moses is upon your head. And if you won't believe his writings, which were about me, how can you believe my words? Because you're rejecting me. I want to sit in it for a minute. I heard this exercise 10 years ago, maybe. The pastor was talking about how if you were allowed to set your own standard for righteousness, that if God yielded that power to you to make the list of what it means to be a good person, and you set that standard, and I mean, go ahead and like maybe engage that exercise a little bit in your head, but make sure that you account for everything you put in there. You gotta be okay with it. This is how you want your daughters treated. This is how you want yourself to be treated. This is acceptable. This is good enough. Okay, you write, you've, you come up with it. said so each and every one of us, given enough time, 10 minutes or so, would violate our own standards that we came up with. That as fallible standard setters who would err on being super lenient with ourselves, would still find that we, with enough time, we violate our own standard of righteousness. But this is what the world is doing every day, guys. It's what we're doing every day. We are rejecting the standard of righteousness that God has set. We are saying we can do it better. We can come up with our own standards of righteousness. We try to live up to those. And you're walking around with guilt, guys. I know because I'm like living life with you guys and you're living life with me. We're walking around just carrying guilt and condemnation, not even because we failed God, but because we failed to meet our own expectations of ourselves. Just lamenting that like, I'm not as good as I wanted to be. And if that's what we're banking on, that we would set our own standard of righteousness and then carry it out, then even on that day, Jesus won't have to bother accusing us because our own standard that we wrote would accuse us.
But the standard that Jesus has set is this, that on that day, all of us, free invitation, may stand in the covering of Christ. That the whole of the law of God, the law of Moses that these folks are looking to, that all of it has found its fulfillment in God himself, Jesus Christ in the flesh, that he fulfilled the law on our behalf in order that on that day we might take hold and take claim of another's righteousness and not our own. And it's the only way, and it's the only truth, and it's the only life, and Jesus alone claims it. And so we are all put in that position today and every day to answer that question. So in conclusion, church, I want to invite you to consider this together. If Jesus has claimed to be God, and we are to accept that. And if Jesus has told us, I mean, it makes sense. Like, we live in a super postmodern secular age where we want to believe that there is no knowable objective truth and that no one knows what's going to happen after we die, so we'll just see it when we get there. And that perspective makes a whole lot of sense if the God who created the universe didn't come in human flesh and tell us with his mouth what happens after we die. But he did, and it's written for us, and we've received it, and his word enables us to believe it. And he says that those who hear it and believe it are invited into eternal life. And so this is, this is the moment. And maybe you've never done that. And I'm saying today is the moment for you. Today is the day to respond, maybe for the first time, to this truth that by the word of Jesus alone, dead men can live. The, the moment is here. He says it's coming and it is now here where the dead will hear my voice and they will enter into new life. And so I invite you this morning to respond to the gospel. And if it's not your first time, then by God, respond again. Because the implications of the gospel, church, you need to hear it, is he says, no judgment. No condemnation. How would that wreck and change your life if you really believed that God looks at you and sees Jesus and says, spotless, perfect, holy, righteous, good, and faithful servant. Guys, that's what he has purchased for you if you are found in him. And so we're invited to live in it. And church, I want you to think about the people around you, about your gospel communities, as we take this time now in conclusive prayer. We think about your gospel communities and the guilt and the shame and the condemnation that has been shared with you, that the Lord has invited you and maybe only you to know in relationship with these people. How we have the unique ability as ones who have tasted and seen this forgiveness and this mercy to turn to our brothers and sisters and to remind them the truth of the gospel that they have once and for all received, that there is no condemnation now for them in Christ Jesus. I want to invite you to do that now.